Hey, this is Matt Blois. I'm part of the team that writes and produces Big Biology, and I've got some good news. We just registered Big Biology as a nonprofit, which means we can now accept donations. Just go to our website, www.bigbiology.org, and look for the donate button. There are already a lot of people pitching in to make this show work, but we need your help too. Making the show isn't free. We have to pay for writers, software, and equipment. Even small donations, like $5 per episode, can help us a lot. This is something that we really believe in, and we've heard a lot of positive feedback so far. Now, we need our listeners to start giving a little so we can keep this going. If you want to be part of this project, go to www.bigbiology.org and click on the Donate button. Thanks for your support. Here's the show. To start this story, we're going to take you back in time about four years to the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. The world is fighting the worst Ebola epidemic in history. As it is today, Sierra Leone is considered to be a war front. And so is Liberia. CDC and our public health system are in the middle of a fire. Public health organizations swarmed West Africa in the summer of 2014, but it still took months to get the outbreak under control. This is the largest international response in the history of CDC. This is not simply a matter of providing humanitarian aid. It is very much a national security concern. Up to 1.4 million West Africans could be affected with Ebola. All those deaths, all the fear about Ebola spreading to other countries, the massive government response. Scientists think it all started at a single tree. When the outbreak ended, a team of scientists went to Africa to find its source. They tracked down some of the first reports of the illness and then interviewed people from the village where it started. The first person to get the virus was probably a two-year-old boy in a village in southern Guinea. The people from that village told the scientists about a tree where that boy used to play. A colony of insect-eating bats used to live there, and the kids used to catch the bats for fun. They think the two-year-old boy picked up the virus from those bats. From that tree, the virus spread to neighboring countries, killing more than 10,000 people. Part of the reason it killed so many people is because public health officials didn't know about the outbreak soon enough. That two-year-old boy died in December 2013, but the World Health Organization didn't respond to the outbreak until August 2014. If we can identify a virus like Ebola at the start of an outbreak, it's not as difficult to stop because there aren't that many people spreading it. But it can be hard to predict when and where those pathogens are going to emerge. Disease ecologist Barbara Hahn is trying to figure out a way to map out which places are at the highest risk so that health organizations can respond faster. We can never, you know, fortune tell, but we can, we can do a lot better at quantifying the risk. And the better we do at quantifying risk, the more steps ahead we're able to take in terms of heading things off before they turn into these fire situations where, you know, like something emerges on the landscape and now it's a wildfire before you even realize that it's happening. Like we should kind of be building up, uh, well, that, like horizon scanning a little bit better. One of our goals is to create a tool that can help us predict where outbreaks are likely to happen so that we can prepare for them and possibly even prevent them. We talk with her about how scientists study human diseases that come from animals and what we can do to reduce the impact of the next outbreak. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. You're listening to Big Biology. Animals get sick just like humans do, but animals don't get diseases from the same parasites. For instance, 
birds, reptiles, and people all have their own types of malaria. Every once in a while, though, the parasites from animals jump into people. Viruses and bacteria aren't lying in wait inside of animals preparing to jump into people, but sometimes they become so abundant in a habitat or the humans interact with the animal host so much that they get infected. And that can include things that we've heard about recently, like Ebola or Zika virus, um, things that we have in the United States pretty commonly, like plague. Those are all examples of anim- uh, diseases that have that live in animals and kind of persist in animals but spill over into humans. Usually when humans pick up a virus or bacteria from another animal, nothing happens. Every day we eat, drink, or breathe in parasites from other animals, but usually the parasite is a, a kind of stranger in a strange land. It's not adapted to the host, and so it gets blasted by our immune system or just fades away for lack of food and shelter. But sometimes, sometimes, uh, that pathogen will mutate a little bit or, or adapt a little bit. Um, and with repeated spillover events, that adaptation eventually catches. And then that p- pathogen can now suddenly infect a, a human and then cause, cause damage in a human. Viruses just don't affect all species in the same way. What kills a mouse might not do much to a human. For example, Ebola almost always kills primates like monkeys. But some species, like those bats that started the outbreak in 2014, show few symptoms, or none at all. But what we're really worried about is the species that not only carries it, but carries it for long enough that it can pass it on. Um, And I think from a public health sort of disease management perspective, that's really the thing that we care about. Barbara says these diseases will continue to be a problem. The number of pathogens that have jumped from animals to humans is increasing, and new viruses are emerging all the time. We probably don't even know about many of the pathogens that will make us sick in the future. Rather than focusing on a specific disease, Barbara studies the characteristics of animals that transmit pathogens to humans from wildlife. Do they live long lives, eat things that expose them to lots of parasites, or just produce a lot of offspring? Her research is almost like a detective profiling a serial killer. What neighborhood does he live in? What brand of cigarettes does he smoke? What's his favorite restaurant? So what is it about the ones that are bad that make them special and different from the other ones? Figuring out which characteristics the disease transmitters share could help public health organizations allocate their resources. They just have to look for places where animals with those characteristics live and then put their effort into preparing for an outbreak there. Barbara started the search for those characteristics with rodents. They have a bad reputation for carrying lots of parasites and are blamed for the Black Death in Europe, among other things. So she gathered up a bunch of data about characteristics of different rodent species. Things like their behavior or what they eat or sort of where they live, their social structure, things like that. And she analyzed them to see which traits were associated with species that carry the most types of parasites. Um, The picture that emerged was something that has a fast life history pace, like a fast lifestyle. Um, so you can you can think about rodents as, you know, some rodents have lots of babies starting early on. They don't live very long, but they certainly pump out lots of babies in a very short amount of time. They have faster metabolisms. They might be smaller in size. So it's not totally clear why fast-living rodents carry so many parasites, but it turns out that the characteristics of rodent disease spreaders aren't universal. The rule that a fast-paced life means lots of parasites doesn't apply to bats. Um, not so much. 
When the Ebola outbreak was happening in 2014, Barbara did a similar study on bats. She wanted to figure out which kinds of bats were likely to carry viruses related to Ebola. So she did basically the same thing she had done with the rodents. She got a bunch of information about different bat species in Africa. And we say, okay, algorithm, take the data that I give you and learn what a good reservoir looks like. And then I'm going to give you the rest of the species that, you know, we haven't studied yet. And I want you to pick out the ones that look just like the known reservoirs. That algorithm came up with a list of species that public health officials should keep an eye on. These were species where scientists had never found viruses related to Ebola, but they looked a lot like species that did get those viruses. Within a year, public health officials reported finding a virus related to Ebola in one of the bats that the algorithm had identified. It was a virus no one had ever seen before. Which was, I mean, I didn't know whether to cheer or be like, oh no. Because on the one hand, you're like, oh, our algorithm's working, it's right. Like, our analysis is like, it was on to something. But then on the other hand, you're like, oh, damn it. Like, this is, this is exactly what we thought. This is awful. This is bad news. Okay, so right now, many of you are thinking, this is easy. Kill off the bats and poof, no more viruses to harm us. Oh my gosh, that would be like the worst possible thing. As Barbara said, that's a really bad idea. Bats do all sorts of good things for us, like pollinating plants and controlling insects that can ruin crops. If we kill all the bats, we would lose those services they provide. And also, the environment is not a simple system. Killing all the bats doesn't guarantee we'll get rid of a specific disease anyway. As you've probably picked up by now, lots of parasites do well in lots of different hosts. Kill the bats, and the parasites will probably hide out in some other species. This is what keeps me up at night, right? So when we were doing this Ebola paper, I thought, oh, you know what's going to happen is I'm going to publish this list, and then people are just going to start at the top and start killing off all the bats one by one. Some places have already tried that strategy, but it backfired. In 2007 and 2008, several miners in Uganda and a few terrorists got a rare disease called Marburg hemorrhagic fever, probably from fruit bats that lived in the caves there. Miners blocked off the entrance to the cave with papyrus barriers and fish nets, eventually killing most of the bats inside. A few years later, the largest outbreak of that disease ever recorded in Uganda happened about 20 kilometers away from the cave. Scientists from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and several Ugandan governmental agencies went back there and found a new population of bats. The new colony was much smaller, probably just 1-5% to 5 of the size of the previous colony, but when they tested some of the bats for the virus, they found that the new ones were more than twice as likely to have it. The scientists wrote that the increase in the prevalence of the virus might have been directly related to the efforts to eradicate the bats. The bats living in the cave before probably responded differently to the virus than the new bats that moved in. Four people died during the outbreak in 2012. When scientists sampled the virus from those victims, it matched up more or less perfectly with the virus in the bats. That means those bats were probably the cause of that outbreak. There, there's a balance that, that needs to be struck here, right? When we perturb the environment, we sort of poke it and prod it and push on it. And eventually you're going to, I don't know, I don't know if this is a good analogy, but annoy it. And then something's going to spill over. Um, you're going you're gonna to perturb the balance there. Um, and I think that, that this mentality of like, okay, the easy fix is just to kill all the primates that could be carrying Zika or kill all the bats that could be carrying Ebola. Um, you're just going to perturb the system in a way that you're probably going to make the viral titer shoot way up and it's going to make everything bad for everybody. Instead, Barbara wants to use what we know about animals that spread disease to forecast when and where outbreaks will occur. We're kind of on the cusp of being able to, to develop something that's like, a, like something similar to weather forecasting, right? 
If you think about weather forecasting, you're taking all of these data streams and you're putting them together into these models that give you with a fair degree of accuracy, but the, the fact that we can pretty much say the chances of rain are 70%, that gives us a little bit of leeway. It gives us some, some lead time, right? It's gonna influence my decisions about what I'm gonna do that day. It's an influential thing to have weather forecasting. There's still a long way to go, but Barbara thinks we can get to a form of disease forecasting. Much of the data already exists, but our predictions won't be perfect. Think of how often the weather forecast gets it wrong, even just for the next day. I'm not gonna be able to pick a species and pick a spot on the globe and say, this new undescribed pathogen is gonna emerge from this rodent species in this city in 2025. I mean, that's like crystal ball stuff. That's never gonna happen. Um, but what we can do is say like, okay, well, if we're interested in figuring out what virus is gonna emerge, we should look at what viruses have already emerged and which animal groups have the most viruses and where those are distributed. And by gathering those types of baselines, you can start to kind of draw boundaries around the possibility of like what that risk space looks like. And you're never gonna be able to quantify all of the risks. Like you're never gonna be able to do that finger pointing exercise that I just said, but you can at least say like, well, if I have five animal groups and these are the most, you know, these are the five groups that I think are the most, uh, the most likely to carry viruses, well, the, the majority of the animals that carry viruses that we know of are in this country in Southeast Asia. So maybe we should start looking there first and figure out what our risk is there. As long as humans continue to exploit the environment in such extreme ways and to move deeper into previously unperturbed areas, we'll continue to run into new parasites that can infect us. The good news is we're also getting better at dealing with these kinds of outbreaks. With each new one, we learn a little more about how to respond. But if scientists can develop a tool to help map risk, we could do even better. Realistically, we won't be able to stop new infections from emerging. They're part of the natural environment, but knowing where they're likely to show up ahead of time could save a lot of lives. Thanks for listening to Big Biology. If you want to hear a full conversation with Barbara, you can find it wherever you get this podcast or on our website, bigbiology.org. We talk with her a lot more about spillover and disease forecasting, as well as some discussion of super spreaders like Typhoid Mary, individuals that are especially prone to infecting their neighbors. Thanks to Matt Blois for production help. Uh, thanks also to Steve Lane, Roman Boisseau, Gerard Sapes, and Haley Hansen for help behind the scenes. Music in this episode is from Kevin Hartnell, Poddington Bear, Broke for Free, and punk rock opera. Some of the clips that you heard at the beginning of the show are from C-SPAN. Thanks for listening.